John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We've spent a few weeks already in Mark's prologue, this verses 1 through 15, Considering theology, theology is of no small importance in our life. Everyone is a theologian, it's been said, and that's true. You either do good theology or you do bad. You, some of the bad theology is cursed theology. It will actually condemn us in the day of judgment. But for us to see uh, scripture, we have to come to it, not just seeing the text in themselves, but what the texts represent with the whole You'll remember that in the early church, the elders, the, the apostles, the disciples that were called to preach and teach were uh, confronted with a problem in Acts chapter 6, and that problem was the physical needs of the church, of those who were in need physically in the church, especially the widows, and they needed physical sustenance, phys physical help, and you remember the response was that should we forsake the ministry of the word and of prayer to wait on tables? And so the office of the deacon, which was really perceived in the Old Testament, preconceived there, was uh, settled and established in the New. But the import there of the New Testament was that those who are called to preach and to teach the word must be in the word. They must know the word. But I want to bring to your attention this question, what word was that? The church has just been established, the New Testament church there in Acts chapter 2. Now, may I suggest to you that was the same word that the church of uh, Berea was uh, admonished to be virtuous for searching. And that word was the Old Testament scriptures. The, the word that the New Testament teachers and preachers were called to devote themselves to was the Old Testament scriptures. Now that's important as we come to our text today because as we come to our text today, it won't, we will never have the impact that Mark, a New Testament author, has in store for us as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write 
unless we see what he's saying in light of the Old Testament. And yet too many times today, the Christian is taught to do away with their first half of the Bible, which I think is not only unbiblical, it's not warranted by the New Testament. We've spent three weeks looking at the connection of the gospel that begins with Jesus Christ, according to verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we've been seeing that, as Mark relates it, to fulfillment. In other words, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. This proclamation of good news is in relationship to what has come before him, namely promise. God made promises in the Old Testament. And we increase in our faith, we increase in our resistance to worldliness and ungodliness and our likeliness to fall away into condemnation when we understand that Christ, our Savior, was foretold. That the promises, the good news of Jesus Christ that are fulfilled in him were indeed pre-viewed in the, the Old Testament. We also saw that in that, The idea of repentance has much more to do with the idea of the Old Testament than just merely a change of mind that we often are taught today. In the New Testament church, often metanoia or the changing of mind is just some mental diversion that now instead of thinking things this way, we think things another way, and that's all it takes to be a Christian is some uh, uh, intellectual assent to this person of Jesus. That's not what either the New Testament or the Old Testament means when it says repent. It means a turning, a conversion needs to take place. We need to turn away from sin. We need to believe the word of God. We need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from repentance, there is no salvation. And this is a theological truth in the Old and in the New Testament. And there is continuity there. And last time we, we came together in Mark's gospel, we consider the symbol, the importance of the symbol of baptism. This new covenant sign and symbol, this essential sign and seal that one has been converted and and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And yet this has continuity as well with the Old Testament. If you will, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he is the one that baptizes Jesus with this sign. And Jesus is the one who tells us to go into all the world, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there's continuity with this sign, and it is so important as we see the New Testament unfold that we see it in lineage with what is promised and what is symbolized, what is foreshadowed in the Old well, as we come to our text this morning, we also come to theological truths that are absolutely important for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when I prepare every week to preach to you, I prepare to preach to Christ church. That's what we do on Sunday. God's people, we go away from our workplace, we go away from the busyness of our work schedule. God willing, we're able to be here together, to gather together, to worship. We need it. The world out there is more and more hostile to our health as Christians. And God has ordained, I believe, since creation, 
that his people set aside a day for rest and worship. And that's what we're doing here. And we need to see these things this morning. That first of all, in Jesus Christ is a new and better representative. Notice verse 1 there. Twice Mark has already spoken of Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then go down to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, as I said, Jesus' ministry begins only after verses 9 through 11. And in this one scene, Jesus goes from 30 years as a faithful son to Mary and Joseph, and yes, a faithful son to his heavenly father, especially to spiritual battle for the souls of all his people, all who would believe on his name, all who the father would give him out of the world, John 6, 37. He is now being equipped for his earthly ministry. And there's a scene of Jesus' baptism here. In this scene, a change transpires, which is evident by several things. First, Jesus is baptized. We looked at that last time. He didn't need to be cleansed from his own sin. In his baptism, he is identifying with us. And this is the picture that salvation would come through Jesus Christ and our being united together in him. But first, he is showing us that he is going to be united to us in our sin, in that representation of baptism. Baptism always represents, in a sense, the problem of sin. That's the problem of being buried. The, the problem of being of dying and being buried is represented as sin, but it also represents new life. To being brought out of the water. That symbol is rep- recognizing exactly what Christ came to do, and that's why he takes it on himself, as he says in Matthew, to fulfill all righteousness. Baptism is a sign of new life through Jesus Christ, and so it is with Christ's life. He enters into the depths of spiritual warfare, as we will see. And the depths of the spiritual warfare of his life happens increasingly for three years. In the face of hostility, increasingly, until he goes to the cross and wins our redemption. No one ever suffered like Jesus. And his baptism is a sign that he is going to undertake that suffering for us. And it's to prepare him for what comes next. Secondly, what happens in his baptism is the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Not only descends, but it remains on him in John 1.32. But this is Christ's empowering by God for the ministry that he has for him to do. This is very interesting to me that it isn't until now, while we know that the Holy Spirit was with Jesus, it isn't until now that this becomes an explicit part of what it will take to see Jesus through in his ministry, is the indwelling and remaining Holy Spirit upon Jesus. 
And I believe, as I'll say later, that this is not so much for Jesus' sake as it is for ours. That we know that apart from God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling in us, we can do nothing in the Christian life. Verse 3, or the third point of this designation that we see the Father's voice from heaven. These things all confirm that Jesus is about to embark on something very difficult. Jesus is confirmed to be God's own sin in fulfillment to what, with what the evangelist says in verse 1. Jesus is the Son of God. Now he says, in the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests upon him. But then a voice comes from heaven in verse 11 that says and confirms Jesus to be God's own Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And just as it was the case when Jesus prayed in John 11 to the Father, that I prayed this out loud so that they would know. You know, I know you always hear me, but I want them to know you always hear me. So this comes from heaven, not so that Jesus would know, but that we would know. Here's the Son of God. Here is the Son of God. But we need to see these things in relationship to what comes next in the narrative. You see, God had given representatives to his people before in the scriptures. Adam is that first representative, that really foundational representative for all of humanity. The New Testament bears this out very clearly in Romans 5 and also 1 Corinthians 15, that all are represented in Adam, and in that representation we are all condemned as sinners. Adam is that formidable created head for all humanity that in him and his sin all have sinned. All fell in Adam. And so death passed upon all men because all have sinned, that is, in Adam. And the point there is that God will judge us, all humanity, on the basis of a representative. And that's something as believers we have to grasp. You will either have before God one day in the judgment, Adam, as who you are known by, and you are known of, that first Adam, or you will have another representative, the second or the last Adam, Jesus. There's also the representative that we see, especially in this context of Moses in the Old Testament. Remember Moses at Mount Sinai. He goes up to the mountain. Forty days and forty nights it said he is without water and food up there on the mountain to receive a law, covenant from God. The terms of the covenant that he will make with Israel is given to Moses on that mountain as he is a mediator between God and Israel. That picture we will see here. And even the prophets being spokespersons for God is represented as we will see in this next scene. Because Moses, but especially Elijah, is figured in what follows. But none of these persons, Adam, 
Moses, Elijah, we could look at Abraham, we could look at all of the representative of the judges, even Samson as a deliverer of God's people in the Old Testament. And while all of them may be foreshadows of what comes next, all of them fail. None of them are sufficient to save God's people from their sins. And so that's why we need, second, a faithful representative. Verses 12 and 13. And this is really where we'll consider most of our time today. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out. That's Jesus into the wilderness. Now keep this in mind. The Spirit has descended upon Jesus, remained on him, and the voice has come from heaven. This is my beloved Son. And those words immediately are very important. Because that means that we're going to find out whether this is the Son of God or not. We're going to find out right away. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Mark is profound in his brevity, isn't he? We all think of Matthew and we think of Luke, and they all average, I think, about 12 verses between the two of them with regard to the temptation of Jesus. Mark summarizes it in two. But what he says is full of power, especially in light of the scene. Don't overlook the place that we are, list, we are reading here. He says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Now, what's interesting about this is if we've been paying attention, that's the setting for all of this is the wilderness. John is preaching in the wilderness. The wilderness near Jordan was considered a desert area. But now he says in another place, he says he goes up, not just into, but he goes up into the wilderness. And Luke, he says up, and many believe there he drives Jesus into an a mountainous wilderness region. But we need to have in our mind the picture of desolation. A picture of a place where there is danger. John was the voice crying out in the wilderness. Jesus was baptized in the wilderness. Now the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. There to be 40 days surrounded by wild animals and tempted by Satan. The scene is one of desolation, and it should be in our mind. And there's nothing pristine about the setting that launches Jesus' earthly ministry. There's nothing of royalty. There's nothing of pomp. There's nothing of glory here. And we need to think of those things. Because it says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus set aside his glory. And this is very important when it comes to the purpose for his coming and our redemption. This is exactly the point of it and why the Bible has this recorded and why God planned it this way. Because there are things being symbolized here that relate to what God foreshadowed and foretold about what we need. First, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, isn't he? That was the promise in Genesis chapter 2, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That seed is Jesus, and 
Genesis 17 later, it's singular. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And you'll remember that after Israel is called God's firstborn in Exodus chapter 4, then he by his mighty arm takes Israel out of Egypt. But due to their unbelief, he takes them out of Egypt. He's leading them by their spirit. But in a sense, he leads them right into their, the wilderness because of their unbelief. They are led there for 40 years. And here's what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. The very thing that we see God doing by the Holy Spirit and leading Jesus into the wilderness for temptation, for testing. He said of Israel, whether you would keep his commandments or not, now Jesus is driven, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face temptation. But the scene is very clear that Jesus is not in this place due to his own sin, but to demonstrate that even in the lack of earthly goods and the lack of even company around him because of the surrounding hostility he is faced with even a greater trial than Israel before him he is proving that he is truly the beloved son you notice Mark doesn't say anything about whether Jesus was faithful in his temptation he just says he drove him out and he was tempted that's all it says but bring to mind the regular and the consistent failures of Israel in the wilderness. How often they complained in disbelief. Where's the water? Where's the food? Oh, to be back in Egypt. Oh, who, have, who are you to be over us? Everything that God did, they seem to complain about. And yet nothing is said in the text in any place in the New Testament about Jesus' unwillingness to enter this wilderness or to go through these 40 days. There is no complaining there is no unbelief in Jesus. He goes as he has been ordained to go. Second, Jesus is also in relationship, as I said before, to the first Adam here. In this brief glimpse, we see a symbol that brings us all the way back to the garden. Not in comparison so much as in contrast right? This symbolism drives us to see the comparison between Jesus and Israel in the wilderness, but also the contrast between him and the first Adam. Jesus is called the Son of God, and I said a few weeks ago that only he is called the Son of God in distinction, right? He's the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the monogenes, right? But there's another place, and interestingly, this comes right before Luke's narrative of the temptation of Jesus. Luke 3.38. It's talking about the genealogy of Jesus. And it says this, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, it's debated whether the son of God there refers to the beginning of the genealogy, which is Jesus, or if the Son of God refers to Adam there. If, if it's referring to Adam there, then certainly it means that Adam didn't have a human father. 
God created Adam from the dust of the earth. And that's perfectly suitable. But it is profound that he says that right before this temptation. Because the context is clear that Adam's, while his sonship was due to being created by God, Christ's sonship precedes any sort of creation. He is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased in a very unique sense. But the very contrast that we need to see between Adam, the son of God, and Jesus, the son of God, is the contrast of failure and faithfulness. The scene, again, is helpful for us to remember. Adam was in a pristine garden. Both his body and earth and the earth around him were untouched by sin. There was no lack anywhere in him. He had all he needed. He had a companion. He had Eve with him that God made especially for him. And he even walked with God in the garden as a regular part of his enjoyment of life. There was nothing he lacked. And yet, he even had a special relationship with the animals. He named them all. You know, my kids often ask me, it's one of the the joys of childhood to think about animals. And they ask me, they ask me, kids, you want to know if there's going to be animals in the new heavens and the new earth? I think there are. I think there are going to be animals there, and we're going to just enjoy them to a degree that we can't even comprehend now. The lion, the, the lamb, the bears, the snakes, the everything is going to be there, and it's going to be made new, and no sin is going to have touched it and will ever touch it. But that's not what the scene says about Jesus, is it? He's in a wilderness. He's surrounded by a curse and desolate earth. It's said of this place in, around Palestine, this wilderness, desert area, that it is a desolate and lonely place. I've never been here. But we see the contrast here. Even as we are brought to this place where Mark says about it that there are wild animals there. What a strange reference. If all the things to add in your little two-verse summary, he says there's wild animals. But that in the Old Testament is, coincides with the curse. It's not supposed to be this way. You see, when Israel was out in the wilderness, they were at the mercy of the wild beasts. The jackals, the wolves, the lions. And they were in danger all the time from those things, the scorpions, the serpents. And one of the promises, say in Ezekiel 34, 25, was that at one time there would be no danger from those creatures. But Jesus goes out and he goes to a cursed place. Well, it's cursed because of Adam's failure in the face of temptation. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Because of your sin, cursed is the ground. Cursed are the animals. This serpent that seemed to be the most beautiful of all the beasts is now eating dust on its belly. And the picture is of curse and of the sin and the fall. Things are not right. And because Adam failed of his temptation... 
But Mark summarized this only with this word, this picture, completes this picture that Jesus, in these 40 days, the wilderness, the wild animals, being tempted by Satan. And for some time, I've been baffled by Mark's brevity. Like, how do you write a gospel and not tell us if he actually obeyed or not? If he actually was faithful to the temptation that he faced? And I was rebuked this week by my hasty accusational question in that way. How could he not say whether or not Jesus succeeded or failed? And we know that the rest of Scripture teaches clearly. Matthew and Luke teach clearly that Jesus didn't fail. The rest of the Scriptures, Jesus was without sin. He was tempted in all points and yet was without sin. But perhaps Mark does give us a clue here to the success of Jesus' resistance of Satan. I, I think obviously we are meant to understand that Jesus did not succumb to the temptation, unlike the first Adam. But all he says here is, and angels were ministering to him. I find that profound. And angels were ministering to him. Because this brings us to another Old Testament figure. Another 40-day figure, by the way. Remember when Elijah is battling it out with the prophets of Baal? Remember that? He's on... Another mount, well, he's not on the mount yet, in Mount Horeb, but he's on the mountain Carmel, Mount Carmel, and he's battling out with the prophets of Baal, and he's, if, why halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, right, up there, and he's faithful, and what happens after that? You ever have a real high mountaintop experience? This is why when people ask me, how are things going? I just say, by God's grace, we're good. Because, man, especially early on in my pastoral ministry, man, God would seem to give a, a freedom in the pulpit and God's people would be encouraged and maybe someone would come and, and they'd want to be baptized or they'd want to be saved or, you know, whatever it would be in your... Yes, yes, yes. And then tomorrow you hear news that you could never dream of hearing. And this is Elijah. After this great victory, he is led. This is the language. He's led into the wilderness. And he goes under a tree and he has a little pity party in 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He is afraid for his life. And he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, I've been faithful. It's enough. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. In a sense, this is every one of us. He's being honest here. He's being honest. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, listen to this, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. 
And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And I think this is the picture that we need to see here. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, and the angels ministered to him. And that is telling us that this is God's son. And he's faithful. And God is preserving him. One One of the things about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights that I've been corrected on in the last couple weeks is that this is not a disciplinary motive by Jesus. This is not a, this is not him going into the wilderness as the monks try to get away from the world and, and separate themselves for 40 days. This is God saying to us, he is my chosen one. I am going to sustain him. He is my son. He is going to be faithful to me. He is the savior. He is the one who will save you because he is the only one who is faithful to me. This is the picture. Amongst the hardest circumstances that we could face and everyone else failed, Adam, Moses, Israel, Elijah, Jesus doesn't fail. That's the point of this temptation. But God means for us to see it in light of that. This is the good news to us. Tonight I'm going to preach on Psalm 45, which cannot be enjoyed apart from Christ's incarnation. It cannot. And here's what I want us to see. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, But we need to see him in all of scripture to really increase in the faith and the strength and the power of the Lord that he means for us to have in this world. We need to be kept from Satan and from this world against its devices and against the wiles of the devil, the methods which are many by all the ammunition of the scriptures, by all the strength of the Holy Spirit. He inspired all of this text. And we do our disservice, a self-disservice, if we don't see the connection of Jesus to what has come before us. He is the second Adam, described here, faithful in his temptation, unlike the first one, right? All the benefits that Adam had, he failed. All of the curses that Jesus faced, all of the trials amidst the curses, he succeeded. He did not succumb to Satan's temptations faced with all the dangers around him. Do you think he felt that? Some people, oh, well, he didn't feel hungry because, you know, he, he, he's the, the deity. Of course he's the deity. But he's truly man as well. He's truly man and he's truly God. And his trials and his temptations truly touched him. And we see that no clearly no more clearly than when Jesus goes to another garden. When he's actually in a garden. That's when Jesus is 
most clear difficulty seems to come upon him. The Garden of Gethsemane. And even there, he rests in the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. He is a faithful representative. Adam needs a savior. Moses needs a savior. Elijah needs a savior. Israel needs a savior. Jesus is that savior. That is good news. You need a savior. Here he is. Jesus Christ, the son of God. Today, that good news is held out for all who have ears to hear it. You will be saved if you believe on this Son of God, the only Son of God, who is faithful in every temptation. I want to bring one more application to you this morning, and I've already said it to a degree. We are faced with temptations every day in this world. Your children, my children, are going to be faced with temptations as they grow up within the church. Where do we find strength to resist? Is it okay that we just fall into those temptations? No. What does Jesus pray? In his his prayer, he taught us to pray. Keep them from temptation. Keep them from evil. Deliver them from temptation. May I suggest to you that this is our encouragement for how that takes place. You go, uh, you get up every morning and you say, all right, I'm strong, I'm able, I'm capable, I'm sufficient, I'm good, and you will not succeed. In fact, you've already failed at that point. And the world will tell you that's exactly what you need to do every morning. You need to have a time of self-affirmation. Tell yourself how good you are. Tell yourself how, how smart you are and how beautiful you are how strong and and how you're not getting the dad bod and all that stuff, you know? I mean, that's where your value comes, right? Your own discipline, your own virtue, your own qualities. And the scriptures say that when we are weak, that's a praiseworthy thing because that's when God is strong. That's when he seemed to be strong. But how how is he seen to be strong in the life of a Christian? It's when we tell our children, I am weak. I'm a sinner. It's through this person who resists temptations that I ever resist temptation. It's through him that I'm being changed into his likeness. It's through him that I've stopped looking at things I ought not look at. Husbands, men, wives, it's through him that I'm not concerned with my so proper life anymore with all the drama that goes around it's in him that I find strength to overcome temptation to be taken away by the sins and the snares of this world that are multiple multiple multitude in number Hebrews 2 14 through 18 here's the purpose described in scripture for Christ being our high priest who resisted temptation, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That is, he is the conqueror of our guilt, our sin. He conquered it. We are not condemned anymore. The devil cannot accuse us. His accusations cannot stand before God against us any longer. This is the reason he came as flesh and blood to destroy the works of the devil, the power of death, that is the of the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's in addition. What does that slavery mean? That means slavery to his ways, to sin, to fall under his temptations. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the promise, those who are part of the seed promise. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And because of that propitiations, our sins are cleansed. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Amen. And then it adds, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, we rejoice and we amen about no condemnation, but we don't often rejoice and, can, and say amen because Christ has, in him, given us the power to resist temptation. In him. We don't value holiness that he died to give us. In him. But this scene spells it out for us. We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to follow him in newness of life. And it is only by him that we can overcome temptation. But be encouraged that I think we are meant to see in this that we can overcome temptation by trusting in him now it may not come immediately but it will come we are being conformed slowly by slowly moment by moment little by little to this image so don't lose heart the image of christ if you are not condemned because of his sacrifice, sin will not reign over you because of his sacrifice and because of his faithfulness through his temptations.